Exploring the intersection of medicine, sports, and pop culture. This is the Doctors Are People Too podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Josh Belfer. Welcome to the first episode of the Doctors Are People Too podcast. I'm very excited to go on this adventure with you as we explore the different ways that medicine plays a part in everyday society. We have some really great guests lined up, and I'm hoping you'll take this journey with me as we explore medicine, sports, and pop culture, just like that cool introduction said. And for episode one, we are going to follow in the footsteps of Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, and Elon Musk. That's right, we're going to make billions of dollars. I'm just kidding, but guess what we are doing? We're going to space. That's right, today we are talking medicine in space. Our guest is Dr. Michael Harrison, who is a physician at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Hailing from New Brunswick, Canada, Dr. Harrison is, get this, board certified in emergency medicine, in internal medicine, in critical care medicine, and he is an aerospace medicine specialist. Mike and I had a great conversation on all things space medicine. We talked about what happens when an astronaut gets sick in space, how commercial space travel has changed the field of aerospace medicine, and a lot more. Did you know that astronauts take Tylenol in space? I certainly didn't, but I learned this and a lot more in our discussion. I think you will too. Time to blast off. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Dr. Michael Harrison, welcome to the Doctors or People 2 podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you. Thrilled to be here. We like to start all of our interviews with this question. What is your typical morning routine? Ooh, that's, that's a tough one. Um, coffee is the, I guess, the, the mainstay of every morning routine. Um, working shifts between the ER and the ICU, uh, I don't really have a morning routine because that morning could be evening or it could be early afternoon, depending on, on what time I have to show up at work. Um, and then we got a new puppy yesterday. This morning started at 4.30, so coffee. Coffee, I think we could all relate to. I want to start with your training. You mentioned you work in the ER, you work in the ICU. You did a combined training in internal medicine, emergency medicine, and critical care. You know, most of us pick maybe one specialty to go into. Maybe we subspecialize one other time. You picked, you know, sort of three different paths almost, and, you know, now you have a couple others. But can you walk us through that decision in terms of your initial training? Yeah. Um, so I got even more lost. There is a high school guidance counselor somewhere in Canada that should probably be fired because I think there was a, a quicker way to get to where I was going than what I ended up taking. Um, I did uh, graduate studies in exercise physiology. I was a, a kinesiologist. So I did a master's and a PhD in that before going to medical school. And through that pathway, um, realized that athletes were interesting, uh, but people that work for a living um, and military helicopter pilots in particular were way more interesting. And so that was how I got into the, the aerospace medicine interest. And through that, um, I discovered that there were lots of things that I was doing that people at NASA were interested in. I was doing uh, some work with high altitude uh, climbers, um, people living and working at the South Pole. Uh, and NASA had some, some interest in some of the physiology for that because there's some, some correlates between living at high altitude and living in a 
space capsule of some sort that's possibly at a, a different pressure than what we're, we're used to, what um, sea level atmospheric pressure is. So I got interested sort of by accident in space medicine and aerospace medicine um, and followed that. And at the time that I was applying to do residency in 2011, the shuttle program was coming to an end. So instead of landing nicely on a, a runway in Florida, astronauts were going to start landing on a more regular basis uh, somewhere in Kazakhstan. And I figured what would be better than having an aerospace medicine doctor who had experience in internal medicine, uh, emergency medicine, and critical care, and was fortunate enough to be one of the, the residents that matched that year. That's great. Uh, it's always interesting to hearing the, the paths and the different turns that we all take in our careers. And you mentioned you then did the specialty training in aerospace medicine. What was that experience like? That was incredible. Um, it's always, and so I will, will tell anybody that's listening, it's hard to go on. I guess PGY-8 is a scary number for anybody that's entering residency uh, and not becoming a, a neurosurgeon. And it, I think it would have been even more difficult if I had left training and gone out and worked as an attending before going back to fellowship. Um, but because I didn't know any better, I continued on with, with fellowship. And the experiences that you get in an aerospace medicine fellowship are, are second to none. They're, they're incredible. Uh, I spent time at NASA, um, some time with some of the, the commercial space organizations, the FAA, the NTSB, and really get to see how uh, flight medicine is different and similar to everyday medicine and get to see the, the different practice between regulatory medicine. So what you're doing to get a, a pilot, their flight physical and their, their certification and ability to fly. Um, versus uh, preventive medicine that you do every day in the clinic, right? The differences between the blood pressures that the FAA will allow in their pilots and the blood sugars, they like them to be a little more hypertensive and a little sweeter because nobody passes out from having slightly higher than normal blood pressure or slightly higher than normal blood sugars as compared to what I was doing with my, my regular clinic patients where you were trying to get everything as low and in a, a nice tight limit as possible. I think we're going to get a lot, a lot more into the uh, the details of practicing medicine in, in space and those types of environments. I guess for the unfamiliar among our audience, you talked a little bit about it in, in your last answer, but what is aerospace medicine? What's encompassed under that field? So to be board certified in aerospace medicine, you actually come under the uh, American Board of Preventive Medicine. And one of the requirements is that you have a, a master's of public health. And I will be the first to admit that I was one of um, probably many people that are, are going to be saying the same thing in your listeners of what does aerospace medicine have to do with public health and preventive medicine. But there's actually a, a pretty big component of it. Um, and we're seeing some of it uh, with COVID, right? Um, the way travel and globalization has occurred, public health and, and air travel are, are closely related. And the same with pilots. You put a, a pilot in the cockpit of a commercial airliner then suddenly you've got two or 300 lives that are dependent on the health and the well-being of the people in the cockpit. Um, and that's not counting people on the ground, that if something bad happens and that airplane comes down somewhere other than where it's intended, there can be a, a pretty catastrophic event that impacts many, many people. Um, and so that's where the, the preventive portion of it um, comes in, the, the risk tolerance that we'll uh, accept in getting a medical certification for a pilot is very different than what you would accept for a regular person with a, a similar comorbidity. Uh, the example that really makes people pause, um, if you and I were to, to have a heart attack and be taken to the, the cath lab uh, and have a stent placed, 
we would go back and see the cardiologist after a couple of months and the cardiologist would ask us how we were doing. And if we were back to life as normal, right, jogging a couple miles a day, a few times a week, stuff like that, then they would be happy. That would be the end of it. If you fly for a commercial airliner and you have that exact same event and go to the cath lab and get a stent placed, the FAA wants you to go back to the cath lab six months later to have that stent checked again. So even if you have absolutely no complaints, we want to make sure that everything is okay before we allow you to go back to flying people around the country and around the world. So just little tweaks like that in how you practice medicine and what you'll accept for risk tolerance is what, what defines aerospace medicine compared to, to regular medicine. As we dive a little bit deeper into aerospace medicine, we'll focus this conversation a little bit more on space. What are the unique aspects of space from a general broad sense that complicates aerospace medicine and, and makes it very much different? or maybe even in some aspects similar to medicine that we practice here on Earth? So space medicine's got a lot of similarities to aerospace medicine as a, a whole, um, but also wilderness medicine and austere medicine. Uh, anything where you're practicing in a very resource-limited environment. Um, so suddenly, the middle of nowhere in Africa or in Iowa or some place where you are more than 45 minutes away from definitive care, now you're starting to see some, some correlations with what you're seeing for for space medicine. Um, and what's happened in the past is that the professional organizations, NASA, um, European Space Agency, Canadian Space Agency, they've done what they call buy-down risk, where they will take a large um, applicant pool and they will find the healthiest people they can and the most qualified people out of that group so that the people that they're sending uh, into space, which is a hostile environment and getting there is dangerous. Um, they know that those folks are less likely to have something come up from a, a health perspective that needs to be addressed and may compromise a mission uh, and may compromise crew safety. That's starting to change, though, uh, with the, the advent of, of commercial space. And I'm sure you're going to ask some questions about that as we move forward. Absolutely, we will. And you made some comparisons to other environments. Obviously, in science and medicine, we like to draw on our knowledge that we already know from different experiences, animal models to help predict what, how humans are going to react to certain diseases. Are there other environments or experiences that compare to medicine in space? Something like uh, I've read a little bit about you know, people who are bed bound in terms of the fluid shifts that take place. Are there other similarities in, in terms of different experiences that we draw on when it comes to medicine in space? Yep. Um, and that's one of the reasons that NASA is interested in uh, the South Pole, right? Antarctica is a, a great analog and people use it as an analog for space flight um, and space flight medicine in particular. So what you've got is a, a small population of adults who are in a, an environment that is hostile. Um, it's very cold. Uh, South Pole is actually at altitude, so you're at a decreased ambient um, temperature and pressure. And you're a long way from home. And if weather turns bad, then you could be isolated for a, a prolonged period of time. So you get the physical health challenges that go along with being there and trying to be self-sufficient. But then you also get um, the other component of it that's a, a big issue for space, especially if we're going to go deeper into space for longer and longer periods of time. You start to get the psychological component. Uh, you've got a small group that has to be able to function well as a group, has to be able to perform, has to be able to get along. Um, and they're people. So there, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be some tension. Uh, and how do you manage that? Um, and these are people with, with families uh, that aren't necessarily with them. So then you end up with, with isolation. Um, you can get some depression. 
and how do you how do you manage that? How do you keep people? How do you keep morale up? How do you keep people happy? How do you keep them performing at their utmost best in an environment like that? So Antarctica is an example. Um, there are other uh, Mars Desert Research Station out in Utah, high seas in Hawaii. Nuclear submarines are another analog that has been used. So anywhere where you get a small group of people that are entirely dependent on each other for survival and have to get along and are away from their normal environment, then you've got a, a perfect analog for space flight. And Mike, what else can you tell us about when we send astronauts into space? What are some of the other physiologic differences that they experience as they go into space and spend time in space? Yeah, they all tend to come back to microgravity. And so humans have evolved very well to tolerate a 1G environment here on Earth. And what happens when you end up in a, a 0G environment, you get some some differences. So at the end of the day, I'm sure we've all looked down and seen the, the lines from our socks around our ankles, especially if we've been on our feet all day. And it goes away by the next day, right? You put your feet up, you go to bed, you wake up in the morning, and your legs are, are back to looking like normal. What happens? Um, and so that that's the result of a fluid shift. Uh, gravity pulls the fluid down to your, your ankles. And then when you lay supine, fluid redistributes back to normal. In space, that doesn't happen. There is no up, there is no down, there is no sideways. Um, what could be a wall for you could be the ceiling for somebody else, and it could be the floor for another crew member, depending on how they're oriented inside the, the space station or the capsule. Uh, and so fluid behaves the exact same way. It has no idea what's up, down, left, or right. And what you end up with, and you can find pictures of astronauts um, that demonstrate this on, on Google, uh, they look puffy. Their faces look puffy when they first get to space. And so what has happened is a lot of the fluid that has been in their lower extremities now floats freely in the body and it tends to, to go up. And so uh, the astronauts will complain that they get a bit of a headache. They may have some sinus congestion. Um, some of them complain that they have altered taste and smell. And if you, you talk to the astronauts, they'll tell you that hot sauce is one of the favorite condiments uh, on the space station because they can, they can taste it. It's something that will actually give them some flavor to their, their food. And then everything that, that goes along with that, right? Our, our heads and our, our hearts aren't used to fluid in that volume being that far north in the body, right? That far up. And so what you end up with is you get a, a diuresis. People start losing the fluid and they urinate it out. So then when they come back to Earth, suddenly now the fluid's gone back to the, the distribution that we're used to because of the influence of gravity. And now they're actually volume down, they're hypovolemic. And so when they stand up, they get dizzy. And we've all had that feeling where you stand up too quickly and you get sort of a, a whiteout coming in from the sides and a, a lightheaded feeling and you wobble for a second, you sit back down and then you try again. About 70% of astronauts come back and have that sensation. The fluid in the inner ear uh, also responds to gravity. And so when you take gravity away, then suddenly you no longer get the same sensation when you turn your head to the side um, and there's a, a condition, space adaptation motion sickness, um, that the astronauts get. And some of them say it's pretty profound. And some of these astronauts, some of the astronauts that get space adaptation uh, sickness are very experienced fighter pilots. So they're used to being in an environment that puts some stress on their, their inner ears and causes violent movements. Um, and they still get motion sick from it, or it's comparable to motion sickness. It's, it's different, but it, it's comparable. So... There are a ton of differences that occur. We lose bone mass. We lose muscle mass. They do two hours of exercise a day to try to compensate for that. I think it's interesting. Fluid is certainly something we, we think a lot about in the ER, like you do in ICU yeah. settings, and put all of that in a microgravity environment and 
these are the challenges that you're describing. I want to ask a follow-up question to, to what you just mentioned in terms of astronauts coming back to Earth. And I, I've read some opinions that say that before we start venturing out to Mars or other planets, we need to focus more on the symptoms and the experience of returning back to Earth and some of the symptoms that you uh, just described in your last answer. What do we do to try to fight against some of those symptoms that you described? And how serious of a concern is it if we're sending people not just to you know the International Space Station, but out to Mars and missions that are going to last several years, and now they return back to Earth? Yeah, that's a good question. So when the astronauts come back to Earth, they can run a wide spectrum uh, in terms of how they're feeling. Uh, and you can find videos and images of some of the astronauts who are, are very clearly not feeling well, right? You watch them very carefully. They're not going to turn their head to look at somebody behind them. They're going to turn at the waist to try to avoid the provocative head movement and the inner ear stimulus that they would get uh, all of a sudden when they, they start moving. Some astronauts come back and they need help being extricated from the capsule. They either need to be carried out or, or helped out, and others are able to, to climb out and stand up and, and walk around and, and do just fine. Um, and then some of them have a delayed reaction. Some of them that are able to, to get out of the capsule and stand up and, and feel great, uh, a few hours later, it's too much too soon, and suddenly then they're very symptomatic. NASA's got a, an aggressive protocol for bringing astronauts back where they do a fluid and a salt load before re-entry to try to get that volume replaced um, and so that when they come back, they're not orthostatic. They're not dizzy when they stand up and, and move their heads around. Other space agencies are, are doing very similar things. Some wear compression garments to try to squeeze what fluid they do have out of the legs back up towards the, the core and the head to try to combat that sensation. And then a lot of them, Canada, uh, NASA, they do a, an aggressive rehab protocol when they get back. The astronauts get uh, basically a, a personal trainer, uh, and they do do a lot of work in the gym to try to get their strength back um, now that they're living and working in 1G environments. And then they, they usually have to do a driving test or a driving test after they've been back for a couple of weeks because they've just spent six months or however long they've been up there traveling at 17 and a half thousand miles an hour. <laughs> and so having somebody that's dizzy and used to going very fast behind a car is probably a bad idea. So I don't know exactly what we need to do to further what we're, we're doing to get astronauts coming back in, in good shape. I'm not sure that that in and of itself is going to be a showstopper for going to uh, another planet. And I think that when we do uh, have exploratory class missions that spend years uh, in space and living on another planet that has its own gravitational field, right? Mars is about 40% of what we have here on Earth. I think we may be surprised by some of the things that we learn when some of those astronauts come back to Earth, having been gone for a couple of years. Sure. And I think that's that's one aspect uh, of it that's kind of underappreciated, I think, the return to Earth. I think all of us watch the shuttle launches. We watch, we watch the astronauts return, and we hope, obviously, for a safe return. And then we don't think about it anymore once they land safely. But I think you're highlighting some of the, the additional concerns that, that is important to think about. I want to shift a little bit to uh, medical illness and medical emergencies that astronauts may experience in space. And I'll start by asking you, what has been our experience? Obviously, it's a small group of people to start out who have traveled into space. Uh, like you mentioned before, these are people who undergo rigorous training, who are selected based on specific tests, potentially based on age, their ability, their medical history. So what has been our experience with astronauts getting sick in space? Fairly significant uh, proportion of astronauts 
feel unwell when they first get to space, um, right? As a result of the fluid shifts and the space adaptation uh, syndrome that they get. There have been cases of infectious illnesses, usually a viral URI or something like that, uh, traveling to space. And so all these organizations do a fairly aggressive quarantine to try to prevent that from happening, especially right in today's environment with the COVID pandemic. That's the, the focus of the, the quarantine and the protocols. But there are cases of adenovirus and things like that going through an entire crew, right? Somebody brings it up, uh, you're in a, a small capsule. Um, the space station's about the size of a, a six-bedroom house, uh, and there are six people, six to seven people in it at any given time. Um, ventilation, you can't just open a window up there, obviously, and air things out or go out for a walk. Uh, so if somebody's got something that's contagious, there's a good chance that the other folks are going to get it. And if you get something that gives you sinus congestion and you already have sinus congestion for a non-infectious reason, you're going to be kind of miserable. Um, and some of the astronauts have said that, yeah, if they get a cold in space, it's not a lot of fun. From a, a crew perspective, who's available either physically on the missions or virtually able to be reached to assist when there are medical problems or medical emergencies on the space shuttle? So every mission has got a crew medical officer or two. Um, and the reason you would have two is if something were to happen and the crew medical officer becomes the patient, then you would like there to be another medical officer on board that's got some medical training to, to help out. Um, if you're the crew medical officer, then that may mean that you've done phlebotomy and sutures and a couple of first aid courses and maybe shadowed uh, a local ER, things like that. NASA does have a fairly sizable population within their astronaut corps who are physicians or were physicians before becoming astronauts. Um, the most recent class, Dr. Anil Menon, who was the medical director at SpaceX, was hired and he's a, an emergency medicine doctor in a wilderness and aerospace medicine doctor. Um, so any crew that, that flies with him is going to be in, in pretty good hands. They're going to have a, a qualified doctor if something were to happen. Uh, but that's not guaranteed. Not every mission has a, a doctor on board. There's always a crew surgeon that's sitting console and mission control and available. They have regularly scheduled private medical conferences on a, a private comms loop um, where they can share things with the, the doc and get some advice. There's a medical kit on board uh, and the medical kit on board, the, the International Space Station is fairly robust in terms of, of what it's got, right, for treating basic stuffs, sutures, band-aids, antibiotics, pain medicines, anti-nauseants, anti-diarrheals, stuff like that. Uh, all the way up to some of the more aggressive stuff if somebody were to have a cardiac arrest event or a more catastrophic type illness. You mention the support that's available at Mission Control for these astronauts should they need it. And obviously that's a great point of support, especially when you don't have Dr. Menden up in space with them. As we go further out into space, and we talked about this before, going in missions that are going to you know, take us a lot further away from Earth than we've already been, how does that change things? How do you envision that changes potentially the crew and the training that, that is uh, done with them before they go on their mission? And how does that impact the, the communication that, that they have with mission control should they need it for a medical emergency? It's going to be a, a big challenge. When we get to Mars, we're going to have a 20-minute comms delay with our current technology in one direction. So if you have a question, it's going to take 20 minutes for that question to get from Mars to wherever mission control is located. And then it's going to take 20 minutes from when the answer is formulated and prepared for that answer to arrive back in at Mars. So if it takes a few minutes to come up with the answer 
and then it takes a few minutes to digest and interpret the answer, right? You're potentially looking at an hour or somewhere around there. Either way, a lengthy delay, especially in the case of an emergency. So we're going to have to come up with a way to make the crews that go on these missions as autonomous as possible. And that includes being able to handle a medical emergency. So that is probably going to mean that there's going to have to be a physician or a medical team on board the vessel. We're probably going to have to come up with newer ways of either teaching new skills, right? You're not going to be able to get a doctor that can do absolutely everything. Uh, House is a, a very entertaining TV show, but it is entirely unrealistic, right? I'm not going to draw my own sample and then walk it down to the lab and analyze it myself and then take the patient to interventional radiology and do the biopsy myself, right? That, that doctor does not exist anywhere on the planet. But since we're not on the planet in this scenario, we got to come up with a way to, to create a doctor that can, can do that. And so that might include just-in-time training, um, simulations, a skill enhancement, if it's something that they've been trained in but they haven't done in years, especially if they've spent a couple of years on this expedition with primarily healthy people. There are some skills that are, are perishable. And coming up with a way to, to refresh those skills, to have the equipment on board that you need to do that skill. Um, and so that might involve 3D printing or something like that, that you're not stocking for every single supply, but you're stocking for the ability to create the supply if you need it in a short time period. I think it's going to be really exciting because all of those things apply to life here on Earth, right? You think of a, a natural disaster, um, and Haiti's the, the one that, that comes to mind, right? When they have earthquakes and we send teams of medical missions down to, to help, getting personnel present is one thing, and then having the equipment to do what you need to do and the supplies you need is the other challenge. So if you can come up with a way that you can create these things just in time on the surface of Mars, then you can apply that to what we're doing here on Earth too. That's going to do it for part one of our interview with Dr. Michael Harrison. Stay tuned for next week when Dr. Harrison continues to share his insight into space medicine. We talk about doing CPR in space and how commercial space travel will continue to change space medicine. Thank you for listening to the inaugural episode of the Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure to share it with your family and friends. Follow us on our Instagram page at Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Do you have a question or comment on the show? Maybe a guest recommendation? Direct message us on our Instagram page. Until next time, this has been the Doctors Are People 2 podcast.